Let us pray. So, Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with rejoicing for your good work in us. And, Lord, even today, that you would come among us by your Holy Spirit to mold and shape and conform and renew us more and more in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. I'm going to dive right in today, continuing in our sermon series that we began in earnest last Sunday on the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. Um, and just forewarn you a little bit, um, the first part of today's message is a, is a hard word, but I'll heal you before it's over, okay? So um, as we move through this series this summer on the Beatitudes, I want us to continue bearing in mind Craig Keener's observation that the Beatitudes paint a picture of how kingdom-ready people live. And I want to reflect on this throughout this series. And, and I think we need to continually ask ourselves, are you and I, are we as a church living as kingdom-ready people? And what areas or aspects of our lives need to be more fully transformed and aligned with Christ, the image of Christ and the priorities of his eternal kingdom? So let's turn to Matthew 5, 4. I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with scripture on them. And there are Bibles under some of the pews as well if you don't have one with you. Um, and also mark Isaiah chapter 61, because we'll be turning there in a few minutes. Matthew 5, 4, we read these words of Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm actually going to take two weeks on this single verse, because there are two aspects of the mourning which Jesus speaks of here. And it was too much to cover in one sermon. First, there's the personal dimension or aspect of mourning. And then second, there's the corporate dimension or the, the big picture, if you will. So we'll focus on the personal dimension today. Blessed are those who mourn. What does that mean? And especially what does that mean in this context? Generally, when we hear the word mourning, our thoughts immediately go to grieving, especially those who are grieving the loss of a loved one or a dear friend. And as I worked for many years, a lot of you know, did ministry as a hospital chaplain, I was exposed to a wide range of cultural expressions of mourning. Um, how people mourn is very much culturally rooted. Um, in addition to that, Apart from the cultural pieces, I saw at times some very healthy and helpful ways of people going through grief and mourning. And I also saw some incredibly unhealthy, unhelpful, and even self-destructive ways. The one hospital where I served, it was a level one trauma center. Um, over the years um, leading up to my time there and while I was there, they replaced the furniture in the trauma family waiting room multiple times because when people received tragic news, they picked up furniture and threw it into the wall. Um, one of the things they trained you as a chaplain is whenever you're involved with giving difficult news, you never stand in a doorway because you might get knocked over. Um, Certainly God does offer comfort to us in times of grief, sorrow, and loss. Isaiah 53 prophesies that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 1 Peter 5, 7 
calls us to cast all our anxieties on him, speaking of Jesus, because he cares for you. It is God's will, his earnest desire, that we as his children entrust all of our cares to him and allow him to be our burden bearer. However, when we look at Matthew 5, 4 in its context here, Jesus is speaking of a different kind of mourning than loss or grief of a loved one or a dear friend. And, and biblical commentators really do agree on this. Because what Jesus speaks of here is mourning with a different cause. And to understand what Jesus is talking about, I think we need to, and commentators again point to this, we need to jump back to the Old Testament, specifically to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. And I'd invite you to turn there with me if you would. This is a very important Old Testament passage regarding the earthly ministry of Jesus. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, we read these words, speaking of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I know I'm stopping in the middle of verse 2, but I'm doing this for a specific reason because when Jesus is quoted as reading this very passage in Luke chapter 4, this is where he stopped reading from the Isaiah scroll. And then Luke 4, 21 tells us that Jesus then said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The morning Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5, 4 and things that he refers to in um, Luke chapter 4 as well, relate to the fact that God's Old Testament people, even down to Jesus' day, were oppressed. They had first been oppressed by the Babylonians, then they were ruled by Persia. During Jesus' earthly ministry, they were under the fist of Roman rule. But more profoundly, what was the cause of this? What is the issue that lies at the very heart, the core of the matter? And the fact is, what lies at the core of the matter is sin, the sin of God's people, both individually and as a nation. And I know when we speak about a nation, we speak collectively, there are always individual exceptions. But as a rule, the general thrust was that people were in rebellion against God. And because of disobedience, God's hand of protection had been lifted. And they were experiencing the consequences of their sin and their disobedience and worst of all, this was all avoidable because instead they could have experienced God's wonderful supernatural comfort and provision. Well, that's God's Old Testament people, but speaking to us today, there needs to be sorrow. There needs to be mourning for our sin, for our personal sin, for the sins of the people of God, and for the sin which is so prevalent in the world around us. So let's take a moment today, talk about blessed are those who mourn, and look at the personal dimension of that. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, in his wonderful book on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, referring to this. This does not mean that the Christian is to be perpetually morose or forever weepy. The Christian must not fit the stereotype in the mind of the little girl who once exclaimed, that horse must be a Christian because it's got such a long face. Blessed are those who mourn is not endorsing that kind of grief that comes from some sort of groveling self-pity. That's not what we're talking about here. 
But when Jesus talks about blessed are those who mourn at the personal level, he is talking about genuine heartfelt sorrow for our sin. He's talking about us personally owning up to things. Me owning up to my sin. You owning up to your sin. Sin that required Jesus to go to the cross. The kind of sorrow he speaks of is the sorrow we experience when we recognize the darkness of our sin and the wickedness of the human heart. It's an awareness that grows more and more the more we are exposed to the purity of a holy God and exposed to the incredible lengths he went to to show his grace to us. We see this kind of sorrow and awareness of sin expressed by God's people in the Bible. Some two specific examples I want to look at. First in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 6 has this vision from the Lord that many of us are familiar with where he sees seraphs, angels in heaven around the throne of God crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And confronted with this scene, Isaiah is keenly aware of his sinfulness as a human being. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We have the Apostle Paul who wrote in Romans 7.24, which was our New Testament reading last Sunday, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We need to be like Isaiah. We need to be like St. Paul. This is the kind of mourning, godly sorrow that we each need to experience because this kind of coming to grips and owning up to our sin and our brokenness apart from God is a prerequisite, hear that, is a prerequisite to experience the reality of God's comfort, of God's delivering power, of God's forgiveness, of God's healing, of the power of God's grace at work in our lives. You see, it's about getting to the end of our rope, coming to the place where we stop, I stop making excuses, I stop, we stop, you stop trying to justify or explain things away. Then we get to the end of our rope, that last little part, and we're grabbing and holding on to it. Instead of holding on, we let go. And we see Isaiah's response, Paul's cry. The same cry that needs to be that of someone, of each of our hearts, of someone that stops going after purity on our own, who stops trying to battle sin and darkness in our own strength who throws himself or herself into the merciful arms of God, allowing God, God himself to deliver and heal us, not in human strength, but in a strength that comes from outside of us that God in his loving mercy and grace pours into us. On the personal level, the kind of mourning Jesus is talking about is deep, heartfelt sorrow for our sin. Now let's talk a moment about what godly sorrow is not, because I think it's important to understand this. Three things. One, godly sorrow is not sorrow because we got caught or we got busted or our sin came to light, as if somehow we are able ever to conceal our sin from God 
who is all-knowing to begin with. Second, it's not sorrow because of the consequences or because we just want to get out of the results of our sin. How many of you know, even though we are forgiven by God, sometimes there are ongoing consequences for our sin? Lillian Pearsall, who a number of years ago was a telephone operator, relates a true story in her, her work as a telephone operator. Now, I, I need to back up. I'm talking about a telephone operator. I'm going to talk about several things in here that for some of you that are younger, this is going to be a foreign concept. So first of all, um, an operator was a person, generally a lady, who would come on the phone sometimes and talk to you through the line. Um, if you remember on Andy Griffith, the operator was often listening in to what was said. Her name was Sarah. Um, the second thing I'm going to talk about is something that's this little um, glass box with a door that opened called a phone booth. And you used to go into one of those and there was a telephone in there, but you couldn't just pick it up and make a call because there was something called a payphone. Now, some of you may not admit it, but I can remember when I was really young, it took a dime to make a pay call. And then it went up to a quarter. But there was also something in that day called a long distance call, which from a payphone you put money and then the operator would come on and tell you, your time is up, you have to put more quarters in to continue the call. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I know a whole lot of you in here can remember that. So Lillian Pearsall, now that you have a frame of reference, especially you guys over here and a few of you over here, um, relates the story about a customer who talked overtime once on a long distance call from a pay telephone booth. And even when she broke in with friendly reminders, he refused to deposit his overtime cord, uh, coins. So instead, angry, he slammed the phone down, irate and verbally abusive toward her. Just a few moments back, he hit the zero, which, which is the way you got a hold of the operator. And he said, operator, please let me out of the phone booth. I'll pay, I'll pay, I promise I'll pay. Just let me out. And somehow the customer thought that she had control of the phone booth doors and locked him in. She explained that she didn't and she walked him through how to give the door a firm kick and make it pop open and he freed himself. But we're a lot like that guy in the phone booth sometimes, I think, aren't we, in terms of we want to get away and, and circumvent the consequences of our sin. We want to get out of the results. The third thing that godly sorrow is not is sorrow that is, is not acknowledging or admitting sin. Excuse me. Excuse me. I got that. Let me get it wrong. Godly sorrow is not acknowledging or admitting our sin and then going on to make excuses or somehow trying to justify our sin. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, this happened, I did this, but, 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 he caused me, it was that thing's fault, it really isn't my fault. Some of you, I'm going to go back again, remember the football coach Don Shula with the Miami Dolphins, um, the only undefeated team in NFL history that went all the way through an entire season through the Super Bowl and never lost a single game. In his biography of Don Shula, Ken Blanchard talks about one time that Shula lost his temper during a game against the Los Angeles Rams with an open microphone to a televised audience of millions of people. 
Shula was rather explicit in some of the things he said and in his profanity and letters appropriately soon arrived from all over the country voicing disappointment and shock and how, people, how they had lost respect for the coach and his integrity. When this happened, Shula could have made excuses, but he didn't. Everyone who sent a letter who had a return address on their envelope or in their letter received a handwritten personal apology from Don Shula. And in every instance, he closed the letter with this. I value your respect and will do my best to earn it again. Blanchard goes on to say there are two ways to gain respect. One is to act nobly. The other is when you fail to do so, to make no excuses. Our culture is rife with excuse making for wrongdoing. We see it, we hear it all the time. And quite frankly, at times that, that kind of thinking has crept into the church where we are continually blaming someone or something else for things that we need to own up to. Godly sorrow and mourning is none of these three things I've just mentioned. Godly sorrow that leads to comfort and blessing begins with you and me recognizing and confronting the gravity of our sin and letting the blame rest where it really does, squarely on our own shoulders. Our sin that separates us from God. Our sin that grieves God's heart. Our sin that is an offense to God. Our sin that dishonors him and brings reproach on his name. And when we come to grips in a God-fearing, God-honoring way with sin, it's not, the primary concern is not self-interest. Rather, our primary concern is that we have reflected wrongly on the image and the character of our holy God. Coming to grips with these very unpleasant realities, with these things, requires us to honestly accept ourselves, assess ourselves and it is a non-negotiable because getting to that place is an essential step in surrendering ourselves fully to God. Surrendering ourselves to him, falling into his arms of grace and mercy and allowing him to do his transforming work in us. It is allowing God to have full control of our lives. I'm doing a lot of old illustrations today. But some of you can remember the bumper stickers that said, and by the way, I do not endorse in any way voicing your theology through bumper stickers. So let's just get that straight right away. But the first bumper sticker that came out years ago was God is my co-pilot. Some of you can remember those. And then after that came subsequently a bumper sticker that said, God is my pilot. I'm only the co-pilot. And the reality is neither one of those is a um, full surrender to God in a, in a way that doesn't absolve ourselves of personal responsibility or some kind of defeatism. Surrender to God looks a whole lot more like we take the keys out of the ignition, we get out of the car, we walk around to the back, we take the keys, we open the trunk, we climb in the trunk, hand the keys to God and pull the trunk shut. That, that's a whole lot more what full surrender to God looks like than being the co-pilot. And brothers and sisters, that is the starting point for comfort 
and for healing. Because as we look to the Lord, as we come to grips with these unpleasant realities about ourselves, God gives us comfort that we can count on. Recognizing our sinfulness, an honest assessment of such things, is the beginning, the beginning of grasping God's incredible grace. And our need for God's grace. You see, if we don't come to the place of recognizing and acknowledging and admitting our sinfulness and brokenness, we'll never see our need for God's grace. Do you see the correlation there? Because if we don't need forgiveness, if we don't need mercy, where's the need for grace? And then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? We must have godly sorrow. But our sorrow, our mourning is not despair. Because the kind of sorrow that God works in our lives ultimately is healing and redemptive and freeing and liberating and Holy Spirit empowering. And it ultimately leads to great peace and great joy that the world can never experience. 2 Corinthians 7.10, St. Paul writes these words. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Mourning, genuine sorrow, is the starting point. It leads to repentance by God's grace and power, turning away from those things in our lives that dishonor God. And I know this is a quote that I have used at least three times preaching here at All Saints Church, but I, I want to use it again because I, it's a quote that has stuck with me for more than 30 years. When I was um, a pastor in the Assemblies of God and I heard the Reverend Charles Crabtree, who's now with the Lord, preaching. He was used to be the Assistant General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God, and he said this, repentance is a good word because it is a God word. And you'll probably hear me quote that again. That's one of those quotes that just has stuck in my mind. Repentance is a good word because it is a God word. Repentance, turning away from our sin by God's grace and power, is godly sorrow in action. It is godly sorrow applied and worked out in our lives. So that our bent as God renews us and makes us new creations in the image of Jesus is toward God and the things of God and away from the things of darkness and the things of this world. And God, by his grace and power, gives us safeguards to protect us. God brings people into our lives that help us with accountability so that we don't fall into sin. And repentance demonstrates that our sorrow is not just sorrow for getting caught or trying to escape the consequences of our sin. Rather, our sorrow is because of how our sin keeps us from greater intimacy with God, keeps his, him from being more fully glorified in our lives. And what does this kind of godly sorrow and repentance lead to? It leads to salvation. It leads to fullness of salvation, and it leaves no regrets. You see, worldly sorrow, things like being sorry just because we got caught or making excuses or blame shifting, worldly sorrow brings death. What God's word speaks of here is genuine, heartfelt mourning. It's about getting to the end of our rope. And we each have our own rope. 
when we get to the end of that rope, not clinging, not clinging like this, but letting go. Granted, that is a scary thing to do. Because it means admitting to ourselves that we cannot fix things, that we cannot make things better on our own. It's about admitting to God the depth of my sin and your sin and owning up to it with no self-centered motive or reason. But when we do that, brothers and sisters, when we do that, we are then at that perfect place, the only place where God can pour in his comfort and his healing and his forgiveness and we can experience all of those blessings and all of his mercy and all of his transforming power as reality. You say, well, that sounds really nice, Scott, but how do we know this is true? Because God's word says that it is. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, we read these, ver these words. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrites. Listen to that again. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. At the same time, this same great holy God is also with him or her who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive and to renew the heart of the contrite. Remember Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 6, I am lost. But that's not the end of the story. Because in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 6, we, we see this. When Isaiah gets to that point, then one of the seraphim, one of the angels flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Remember St. Paul in Romans 7, I quoted earlier, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? not the end because in verse 25 Paul says thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind even if with my flesh I serve the law of sin God's healing delivering power surrendering and letting go and falling into the arms of a gracious merciful redeeming God who can make all things new it's the story of people sitting all over this room. I hope it's your story. I pray that it's your story. A true story still being written. It's my story. If it's not your story, God wants to write that story in your life. He desires for it to be your story, and it can be your story. Yes, we all struggle. We all will continue to struggle. We struggle with sins and some it may come to mind that are in our culture the big sins and others are little sins. You know what? In God's eyes, it's all sin. 
but as we throw ourselves open to his mercy, as we throw ourselves open to his work, recognizing who we are apart from him, recognizing our desperate daily need for him, he will, he will pour in his healing, gracious power. He will deliver. He will set free. And he has and he will continue to make us new creations in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he, is a new, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The new has come. God is doing his work. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let us pray. Father, as we, we come to you, we know that this is a hard word. But it's also a grace-filled word from your holy word. It is a healing word. So, Father, search our hearts. Lord, help us if we've tried to cling to our rope or we've tried to recling to our rope. Lord, may we let go. We throw our arms open to you as you catch us and you renew us and you make us new creations in the image of Jesus. Lord, bring us to a deeper place of surrender. Cleanse each of us individually. Lord, cleanse us as a church family of anything, of anything that hinders us from accurately and truly reflecting Jesus. And Lord, may our sorrow, may our mourning be for the ways that our sin has dishonored and brought reproach on your name. Forgive us. Have mercy on us. Replace that mourning with joy and peace that comes from you. And we ask this with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.